So joining our series on this episode is Charlie Bass, founder of The Bass Group, renowned entrepreneur and philanthropist here in Western Australia. Charlie, I look forward to sharing your insights and you've had a, a remarkable corporate career, so we'll delve into that shortly. But I thought we'd begin with your background, if we could. You were born in Pennsylvania and then grew up, as I understand it, uh, in Florida. Walk us through sort of your, your upbringing, if you could. Well, I don't even remember when I was in, born in the Pennsylvania Dutch area. And uh, so very young age, family moved down to Florida. And uh, it was not what you see in the Miami or Fort Lauderdale. We actually drove through what would be Everglades and crocodile alligators to get to the beach. It was like nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever, some summer holiday, my family decided to go up to Toronto to see my, uh, um, my mother's brother, and they loved Toronto so much that we wound up staying in Toronto. <laughs> and that's where I got my love for skiing. Oh, what else are you going to do in Canada, right? So I wanted to be a ski bum. And um, my mother said, no, you're going to university. I said, oh, okay. So what am I going to do? I really liked ancient history. I thought, oh, I might be an archaeologist. That's outdoors, blah, blah, blah. And, but then I thought, there are no jobs in archaeology. They're very hard to get. Well, what else is similar? Well, geology. So I found this university in northern Michigan that was a very good mining and geology school called Michigan Technological University. And they had their own ski hill and 350 inches of snow a year. And I said, that's where I'm going. But little did I know there's no mountains. It was in this little peninsula sticks up in Lake Superior, and the skiing is down a ravine. <laughs> no mountains nearby. I could have gone out to Colorado, but uh, that's for later years. So uh, I did my undergrad degree in geology, and also did, this is where I started, I suppose, challenging the status quo, which is what I try to promote to people now. And so I applied to this U.S. university in Canada, in Ontario. If you were going to go to university, you had to go through a year 13 as a prep year. I got accepted to this U.S. university on the back of my year 12. But now I'm starting year 13, and I thought I'd like to start in the summer. And they said, okay. So I didn't graduate from high school. So I start, I thought, eh, what, what are they going to do? Right. So I start university. And they said, after, and in Canada, you had to take French. So I had seven years of French. So they're telling me, I got to do two years of a foreign language along with my geology degree. I thought, I did seven years of French. What do I have to do a language for? I said, I'd like to take something else that's complementary, mineral processing. And they said, oh. Yeah, well, that, that's fine. So I did mineral processing. Thereafter, the university never required us foreign language. And I did really well in mineral processing. So I don't know where you want. Do you want to continue on? Yeah. Okay. So I graduate. Actually, the year before I graduated, every single person got a job in the resource industry. The year I graduated, not one. So what does a good geologist do? You become a bartender until you get a job. So I got wound up getting a job as a geologist in this copper gold mine in northern Quebec. Very cold, 40 below zero C for about four months of the year. It snows every month of the year. And so I started as a geologist, but it got so cold, you couldn't log core outside anymore. So I said, I'm going to quit. And they said, well, we got a position in the mill. I said, well, I know a little bit about that. I studied that. Sure, go in. And I really enjoyed that. Within a few months, the plant metallurgist quit. And they said, okay, you're plant metallurgist. And then the price of gold was like, wait, this is way back. <laughs> Nobody remembers this. But the price of gold was capped. It was like $35 an ounce. Copper was about 60 cents a pound. 
And all of a sudden, gold is going up and up and up, and the copper is going up. And the powers that be at this mine said, we want to double the throughput. So here I am working with these people. Somebody said, here's, a here's an application for a scholarship, for a master's degree. So I fill in this application, Canadian Mineral Industry Education Foundation, paying me as much as I was making as a plant metallurgist to go to university and study mineral processing. So again, challenging status quo was to go to McGill. I said, no, I don't want to go to McGill. I want to go to Queen's University because they have a professor and they had a program which was more suited for what I wanted. Thereafter, nobody was required to go to McGill. Almost everybody who got these scholarships went to Queen's. So I really enjoyed that because that gave me a taste of, rather than doing the same old, creating new. My profs were so good. It was like, how do you do better? How do you do better? Um, so that set me, for whatever reason, I didn't like, like computers. I just thought, they were, oh, I know why I didn't like computers. I had to do a, a course, I don't know, a Fortran course, I guess. These are the days when there were punch cards. Nobody remembers a punch. You should have, <laughs> nobody would remember a floppy disk anymore, but a punch card. So what do I know? I mean, a zero and an O looks the same. A one and an I looks the same. And I'm putting the computer saying, yeah, reject, reject, reject. This is, me and computers didn't get on. Anyway, this, when I was graduating, um, my prof said, apply for this, um, to AMAX for this, in this group called Operations Research. And that was early days of using, and then was only mainframe computers for certain technical applications. So cost control, construction scheduling, and ore body and mine planning. And uh, I got no experience. In, but they loved me. They hired me. And this was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, because I loved creating. I realized I then taught myself Fortran and did all kinds of pretty cool things, right? Creating new things instead of same old, same old. And one of the, what really turned me on was my, my boss said, there's some new gear that you can, you actually can have graphics because all there was was a pen plotter, right, and a t like a typewriter type thing, right? So I went out and checked out these things, and we wound up trialing this gear from Evans and Sutherland, a place out in Salt Lake City. And I love this story. So Dave Evans and Ivan Sutherland in the 60s were the, the leaders in computer graphics, believe it or not. I mean, there was no they imagined they could write code, they could kind of see the math, what was happening, but they said, we need some equipment to be able to manipulate this and to be able to see it. So they created this equipment, which was great. It was just levers and dials and it was just a, green, a black screen with green lines and whatever. And I took that and I was able to take that and turn it into computer, into things, practical things we were doing. So it winds up that Evans and Sutherland, between their students and employees, was the, 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 a co-founder of Pixar, co-founder of Adobe, co-founder of Oracle, uh, the, the big computer company, uh, and Silicon Graphics. Uh, and some guy who wound up running the biggest research lab in the U.S. government would have. Out all these guys, all these people, out of these two profs, because they empowered them to go and do different things. And from that point on, I thought, same old, same old is not going to cut it. How do we do things differently?
So first first role, first professional job, as you said, AMAX Incorporated in Canada. Then in 1978, you come to Australia for what was supposed to be six months. What, what happened next? Well, that's that was because of my computer app, well, using computer applications for mining. AMAX at that point in time was a joint venture partner in the Mount Newman mining joint venture in iron ore. And they were having some troubles. And so they seconded me out here for six months. I didn't know a soul in Australia. Sylvia and I were married maybe two years. Oh, but that's was great thing about going to Queens. That's where I met Sylvia, my wife. So we come out here not knowing a soul. Within three, the job was horrible, but the people that we met were fantastic. And we weren't here maybe three months. We sat down, we said, I was like yesterday, he said, you know, I feel like we've lived here in another lifetime and it was a really, really good life. And I have a feeling, even though there's another three months to go, that this is where we're gonna be. So those six months wound up being two years I said, no, nah, we're staying, told Amax bye-bye, and I put up my own shingle and went consulting. And then from there, I understand you've launched a, a software business known as MeTech. What was MeTech all about? It was an exploration and, and mining software business. You'd obviously taken the, the knowledge that you'd learned from Amax, but what did it do in a practical sense and how did you roll it out? So the MeTech stands for Mine Evaluation and Technologies. So I was using the software that I had been using at AMAX and Mount Newman to, if I could sell it, but then those days, again, it was still mainframes. Right? So a couple of companies did buy it, but mostly said, we want you to do this. So I wound up consulting. And whether it was from reprocessing old gold mining tailings, gold mining, copper mines, iron ore mines, it just wherever and whatever I consulted. And I saw work for some pretty bad people and some pretty good people. And I learned, and I, you, you don't realize it at the time, but you're learning what makes a good company and good managers, good owners, and what is not so good. And what were some of those lessons in particular during the, the 1980s, you would have seen a lot of speculators, you would have seen a lot of high flyers, particularly here in, in Perth. How did you, what did you see when you saw the successful businesses and successful individuals and then the, the not so successful? The, you had the promoters for certainly, I mean, Perth in the 80s, I mean, it's really strange. Back then, they were given this name, entrepreneur, to the Alan Bonds and the whoever or anybody in the mining industry. And that gave entrepreneurship a really bad name because they wound up, all wound up going to jail. Right? The rest of the world, entrepreneurs are celebrated. So jumping forward, I really thought hard about, do I call SARI the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation? But anyway, so you learn... I had no time at all for the promoters. Uh, they sat in wherever they were in West Perth or the Terrace, and they couldn't care less what they had out in the bush. And you had those that were really rock solid <laughs> and knew what they were doing and how to go and find things and explore. So it was, how do, what did I want to be? Did I want to be a promoter? Or did I want to be somebody who delivered the goods? So let's jump forward to 1992 and you established your first mining business, Eagle Mining Corporation. You established it with a, another gentleman, Tony Poli. How did that relationship form and, and what was the mandate of Eagle Mining Corporation at the time? Well, that's, I don't know, whether it's serendipity, I don't know how these things come along, but Tony had been my accountant for many years. He was actually a junior accountant for this firm that I was using at the time. Then he went out on his own and I stayed with him. And uh, we wound up sharing, the being in the same office building. And um, one day, one of his clients come along and say, oh, I met this guy 
he's got this project, I'm giving him a hundred thousand, investing a hundred thousand dollars in a private company. And I said, this is Derek Cowlin, one of the owners of Ross North Homes, big home builder out here. And I said, I'll talk to Derek. Derek, this is silly. Show me these numbers. And I said, this is not real. It was, you, you've been played. He says, I don't care. I guarantee. I said, I, I, I'm, I'm hooked. I want to get into it. Find me something. Let's find something. So one of the companies I'd work for, I, I'll call the butcher of Leonora, I'll call him. He had a company called Randwick. And he just, I gave him some numbers he didn't like. And I said, I can't change the numbers. I can't find, I don't care what you expected. This is what, I can't, I can't hack them. No matter what I do, I can't come up with numbers that you want. And I said, look, you don't like it, don't pay me. Just go away. So I had a look at this company, ran when Derek, Tony was saying, let's get in. And Tony's always, he's always been bugging me to, let's do something. So Randwick was suspended from trading and about to get delisted. We had a look at it. Of course, they had some assets. It's nothing great. And we stumped up without talking to the guy who founded it, major owner, stumped up to the ASX here in Perth and paid for their the next year's registration, so it wouldn't be totally cut off. And then went and talked to him, and we talked to all the creditors. And we paid out the creditors that got them to agree 10 cents on the dollar. So when I was up there, running around Leonora, there were all these big wedge-tailed eagles. And I thought, they're pretty majestic. So when, I don't know, maybe that's my I don't know, my spirit. And so they said, well, what's the name? We can't keep Randwick. I mean, that's a really bad name for mine. I mean, that's a gambler's right name. So, so well, what about Eagle? Well, Eagle it was. Um, so uh, we, we played around with those projects. And um, next thing I know, I bump into this fellow, um, Guy Lewington, he was working for Delta Gold at the time. And he said he wants to leave Delta and he only wants to work a few days a week. And are you kidding? You really, you, you're, you're the mine discoverer. He, he discovered two major mines for Delta. He's a, he's an, he's a mine finder. How am I going to say no to him? I said, okay, let's, a few days a week. Anyway, through somebody else, we wound up finding this cut. No, they were a listed. I don't think they were. I can't remember whether it was a listed company or not, but it was two older gentlemen out of Sydney that were very, very good at what they did. And they had a crew of technical people, and they wanted to retire. But they wanted, and they, want, they had the, these assets that they wanted to sell. But we had to take on their technical crew. We didn't have any technical people. It was just Guy and myself <laughs> and, and Tony. But it was nothing. It was nothing. We had no money. We had a few hundred thousand in the bank. So I negotiated this deal with these two gentlemen to, um, you know, spend, we'll, we'll earn in. The, the old earn in story, right? So. We started in this project, and the technical people is, don't waste your time here, don't waste your time there. So we're spending all this time down here. And nothing, 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 nothing. Sniffs. And we go up to this other area where this, they had drilled previously, and Guy and I were sitting there having lunch one day. And we look on the rock we're sitting, and he, he says, a chunk, there's some gold in this rock. What was that? And we looked at the orientation of this rock and what was going on. And unless you're mining oriented, if, you're, if you got rock going this way, you drill this way. All this drilling was this way. So it was hit and miss. So we got a drill rig and we turned it around and we never stopped. And this happened to be 
right on the border, so, some of this was on the border of Joseph Gutnick's great cent, um, Jundi mine. So this one ore body, two ore bodies, they went through the boundaries. So I go to Melbourne and I talk to Joe and I said, well, Joe, how are we going to do? I said, we can mine up, you know, your pit can come up here and ours go up there and then we've lost all this ore. How do we do this jointly? How do we make it work? So we got them pretty, pretty well. So we, this was just an amazing project because we never stopped, never stopped drilling. Within probably two years, we were ready to start mining. I think from the time we turned first soil, we'd bought an old plant, had it refurbished. But by the time, from the time we turned soil to the, our first gold coming out was about four months. It was, uh, you couldn't do that today. Those were amazing, amazing times. I gotta say, then, on the back of that success, people were saying, you're so lucky. I never considered myself lucky. You're so lucky. If I went to the casino, I would lose every cent. That's gotta be luck. I mean, there's maybe some skill, but that's gotta be luck, right? So I guess if I'm lucky, it's in the people that I meet. And it's those people who help make my luck, like meeting Tony and Der and Guy and others and my chief mining engineer and all those kind of people. They're the ones who make my luck. But I guess if I'm lucky, it's that I get to meet the right kind of people. I want to ask you about some of the early challenges, and you, you mentioned one of them there was having the capital to do what you wanted to do. How did you go about uh, finding the, the right capital partner to come on board with, without any assets, in, well, with some small assets in the business, a couple hundred thousand in the bank? How did you take the next step? The, other than the money that we needed to pay the creditors, which mostly came from Derek and a few other investors uh, at that point in time I'm not sure I can't remember how but Warren Beckwith had been playing in the mining field and and was getting out of something and he had some money so he said I could get you 400 grand so he came in we appointed him to the board um, and um, and and think and then um, association with uh, with Hartley Poynton way back. And so we used them to help raise us our first money and second money and third money. And that, there's a little story with Hartley Poynton back then. They didn't, which is now Eurods, but um, Jock Clough was on the corporate side of things, not the broking side. And when I told him what my plans were and what I thought we were gonna do and what, what the timing was, and he said, if you get, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> anyway, we're certainly there, well and truly, and he invites us out to this fancy restaurant called Coco's. Anybody in Perth knows Coco's. And we're sitting there when they have a celebratory lunch, he and Tony and I, and he reaches into the bag towards the end of the meal and he pulls out a Nakubra and he asks the waitress for some tomato sauce pours it on the exuberance as much away. I thought that's the biggest accolade from anybody I've ever had in my life. So you launch Eagle in 1992. In 1997, five years later, it's a subject of a hostile takeover valuing the uh, the business at around about $250 million. 350, yeah. 350, even more. How do you build a business from scratch to 350 mil in, in five years? Well, I guess a lot of it is the gold price is producing gold and, and making, I mean, even then the gold price was maybe $550 an ounce US and our costs were $90 an ounce, maybe all up, sustained, everything might've been a hundred, was amazing because the grade was so good. The grade of this thing is amazing. So it winds up, we were looking to expand and to acquire other gold assets. 
and there was oh, what was the mine? I can't remember the name of the mine or the group, but it was controlled by the Krepany. So we had a look at him and said, hey, we'd like to do this. And the Krepany said, well, I want my people to come and have a look at you. I said, but we're paying cash. So he says, oh, no, 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 we need, we should let him, we should show him what we have. So Tony, we're paying cash for this. Within a few months, he couldn't, the Krepany couldn't stop drooling. So he sees there's us and there's Joe Gutnick next door and there's Waluna Mines struggling. So he says to Joe, I'll back you, go and take, take these all. So he lends Joe the money. Well, hmm. we didn't have enough. We didn't have, between Tony and I, we didn't have enough shareholding to block the hostile bid. So we went with it. But within maybe three months, six months, after getting our money, the gold price collapsed and went down to about 250. And of course, Joe couldn't repay the loan. So the Crepony takes the whole lot. So he ran and didn't run it. And it would change hands, change hands, change hands. Our project wounds up this company, a little teeny company called Northern Star, winds up with it. And they realize how good a project it is. I don't know about Northern Star. So they used our project and then get them into the super pit. Northern Star is now, what are they, 14 billion? Uh, something like $14 billion. <laughs> on my project, <laughs> my $350 million <laughs> sellout project. God. But I'm happy for them. So in 97, the, the business sells, and then you and Tony come together again three years later in, in 2000. But those two or three years, you'd cashed out of the business. What, what were you up to at, at that point of your life? Well, I still loved, I did still love the hunt, the exploration, the hunt, the building, the creating. Um, and Tony and I, um, we saw each other every now and then, but we weren't doing things together for a long while. And he's looking at things and I'm looking at things and we both found the same thing at the same time and said, whoa, let's, let's buy this project and we'll, we'll get it listed. I said, okay, what's the name we're going to use? Well, we need Eagle. It's good, but we don't want to call it Eagle again. So we'll call, call it Aquila, which is Latin for Eagle. <laughs> so here we go. Start with this project. There's a little, um, the you and me gold project, which we, we played around with. Then we started looking in, in Queensland and elsewhere. Um, and I said, you know, so way back when I first got here, it was iron ore. And this low grade iron ore is easy. You make, you make a little bit out of a lot. Um, so let's start looking for iron ore because all these big guys got these big mines. So there should be lots of projects still hanging around that we can take advantage of. And by the way, you realize that whoever buys your iron ore is also buying coking coal to make the steel. You're selling the same. So why don't we look at coking coal and where do we want to go? So we went over to Queensland and South Africa and to Mozambique. So we're, we become big. We became a big company. We had a coal mine operating, trying to build out the iron ore, which now is rather interesting because you have mineral resources doing the same thing we first thought about is they're trucking little bits and then transshipping it maybe 10 million ton a year. And we were looking at it. This doesn't make no sense. It's peanuts. We need to be at least 40 million ton a year. This is way back. But things were escalating. 4 billion to 7 billion to build a new port, whatever. 
But the coal mines were working well. We are making a lot of money out of the coal. And starting to build two others. Africa was going well. Here's another story. <laughs> there was a company, Riversdale, were kind of next door to us in Mozambique. And our geos, everybody, we, 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 we couldn't put this together. We couldn't see how this was ever going to be in operation. And they were saying, Christ, your coal, your coal is way better than us. We said, well, we'll get out of here. So for something like, I, don't, I can't remember what it was, we didn't put in 15 million bucks in Mozambique. And I think we got 50 to 60 million in, in cash and shares from Riversdale. Within about six months or whatever, all of a sudden Riversdale is a billion, billion dollar plus. Rio, they sell it to Rio for $3 billion. They didn't do anything. Rio, two years ago, zero. Wrote it down to zero. Because it could never, the way the coal exists, there's no river, it's a seasonal river, it has to be barred, it's just never going to work. But they promoted it so well. And just in terms of Aquila, Obviously, the, the, like a lot of other industries as well, but mining in particular, boom and bust cycle, how did you go about navigating Aquila through the boom and bust periods of the 2000s? Well, we didn't have... I think in the total life of Aquila, we might have raised about $60 million. Maybe. But we got most of the dollars by, and this is where I give credit to Tony, is, well, let's sell this project, let's trade this, let's... So, dealing projects. Oh, well, another big win was we... Pazminko was going down the gurgler, and they had 49% of the Ernest Henry mine, and who... Um, whoever had first rights refusal, but they did this deal with us. The whoever, because of their financials, who, I forget who had the 51, anyway, they couldn't commit to it, but it wound up that they breached, we figured they, Pazminko went down the gurgler, but we thought they breached this, our agreement, and so we sued them. And we actually won because they had to reserve a whole lot of dollars in their bankruptcy in case we won. And we did. So that gave us, <laughs> that cashed us up. <laughs> and then we had the revenues from the, the coal mine coming in and other bits and pieces. Fast forward over the next decade or so and, and by the early 2010's Aquila Resources had become a major player in Australian mining circles. Take us through some of the projects or, or developments that you were working on. Well, these were, like I said, the coal mines. We had one operating coal mine putting two others into development in Queensland. These are coke and coal projects. Um, the iron ore was, we were flat out trying to get um, a particular area done in the Pilbara. And we were operating in, in Africa as well, but not mining at that stage. We were getting close to mining. Um, and uh, yeah, we got over a $3 billion market cap. And then the GFC hit. And we were smashed down to a little over a billion dollars. But one of our... Um, major shareholders was was Bao Steel, China's largest government-owned steel-making entity, and they'd been creeping up, creeping up the ladder till they got probably close to 20%. And when the GFC hit, they got together with Horizon and said, let's do a hot, another, another hostile takeover. And Tony and I at that time had enough of a stake that we could have blocked it. Well, blocked them from getting 100%. But it doesn't work that way, as we realized. 
they probably would have gotten better than 50% or 51% in control. And they would say, okay, well, this is going to cost us, I don't know, a billion dollars to go and develop this. So where's your, where's your third, where's your, your piece of the action? But well, we can't, that's, do we want to be stuck that way? I suppose we could have taken our interest in and relisted it as something else, but we thought it's going to be, it's really, you're in control. So it's something that's, I guess, a point in my life when I realized be in control of your own destiny. Don't depend upon or expect other people to do the right thing. So we wound up selling out to them at um, what I would have said it was rock bottom pricing. Um, and was able then to pursue in earnest um, my philanthropic journey. So first success with, with Eagle, then Aquila sold 2014 for I think it was one and a half or 1.4 billion. After that sale, like you said, you had newfound freedom. Where did you see your, your interest was lying at that point in time? I think, uh, well, I wasn't ready to retire. So I had two kind of forced retirements. Um, and I was playing around. I, I probably, I still loved, I, I still loved the, the exploration hunt. Early on in 80, between making the deci decision to stay here, leaving Amex, and what, I was in Tucson for about 18 months uh, working in the copper, copper mines there. And I wound up stitching some deal, three separate packages of land together in this area that had some great potential. The big guys had been looking at, but it was not their cup of tea anymore. It wasn't these great big giant porphyry mines. It was something a little bit tighter and very difficult terrain and very difficult geology. And I wound up stitching it together and, and probably putting in five to eight million bucks of my own money to try and make this work. So I was working a lot on that, as well as really gearing up the philanthropy. What else were we doing? We were traveling. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I took this project um, and got it listed as the new Eagle Mountain. So two, two successful exits out of mining businesses, a third that you're the major shareholder of today, obviously incredible success in, in the mining field. You've now broadened your horizons and, and you've got a number of other interests and, and pursuits outside of, of mining, one of which is the Centre for Entrepreneurial Research and Innovation, which you launched in 2016. Take us inside the, the genesis of, of how that all came about. Well, it's um, like a lot of people, it wasn't like a flash. This is a slow burn. So our philanthropy was, was, was and still remains education for disadvantaged kids. And that's predominantly for those that are out in the country, whether they're indigenous or not. Is whether it's here, whether in Africa, in Canada, in remote areas, the people out in the country, they, they do it tough. The kids don't get the advantages as city kids do. Whether you go to private school or not, irrelevant. So I thought, this is, maybe we can make a difference here. So one day I thought, well, my son, one of my sons is, he was going to UWA to do materials engineering, futures stuff. And he goes back for his third year and they said, we're not offering this anymore. Well, why not? Well, there's only 40 kids between first year and fifth year, but we've had 400 kids graduating every year in engineering and mining and whatever in the construction industry. The university's turning out robots, not thinkers for the future. I'm concerned that Western Australia in particular, all of Australia, we're so dependent upon resources. Right? 
what's going to happen when the resources run out? So even our local coffee shops, that flow-on effect of resources affects everybody here, right? So when they stop, or the prices come down because China's found another source of iron ore and we don't need the oil and gas anymore, what are we going to do? Nobody's creating the new industries of the future. Where's education then at the other end of the spectrum, disadvantaged kids who are the smartest kind of people? And these are our PhDs and postdocs or researchers. Well, why isn't their stuff getting out? Why isn't it coming out of the universities? Why aren't they getting why aren't they creating startups? Because the universities kill it. So some of my in trying to research this and traveling to several different areas in the US and reading about in the UK and elsewhere. There's a, a, um, an annual study called the Global Innovation Index and it looks at every country in the world. And Australia's been slipping down the rankings. So if you want to look at the 2023 index, Australia ranks 12th in the world economy. We punch well above our weight where we are population-wise, but we rank 12th. Why? Is because of our resources, because of the iron ore and oil and gas. Otherwise, what else would we have that gives us such a good economy? In the Global Innovation Index, we rank below Ireland and Iceland and just above Malta. Yet we rank 7th, 7th in the world in in research and people. But we rank 30th, way down the list, in knowledge creation and what you do with that knowledge. And I thought, well, there's a disconnect. There's something, something not right. We have all these brilliant people and all these brilliant places in WA around Australia, but they're not given that chance. That to go and make a difference in the world. All they know is looking down the scope or doing their stuff on the computers or whatever. So let's give them a different mindset that they can change the world by getting their ideas or their research out of the lab, create a startup, see how that goes, build it, build it, build it. Once there's one six, how do you build an industry? The, how did Detroit become an auto center? You had one guy, Henry Ford start making some cars, then somebody else starts making some and some. So it's all that's a slow burn, right? These are the industries of the future that are global looking, export oriented, but they can stay here. Clearly the, the response has been phenomenal, as I understand it. Six hundred aspiring entrepreneurs have utilized uh, the foundation's programs and, and resources over the past seven years. Uh, in excess of $7.5 million of funds provided to support some of those ventures. What, what's been the driving force behind the centre's success, do you think? Well, I think there's over a 1,000 now, so those numbers are a little bit outdated. Um, that, and that's... Um, it's, I wonder... The success of, of SARI, the Centre for Entrepreneurial Research and Innovation, is dependent upon the success of those startups we have. On reflection, there are two things that I see is probably of our cohorts, over 50% is English as a second language. So they've come here from somewhere else and they want to do right. And it's rather interesting from all different kinds of religions, ethnicity, cultures, whatever. Once they get that entrepreneurial spirit, all those differences, they disappear. They all become the same, which is really cool to see all these different people meld together. But of all of our startups, we, for whatever, I think there, it's in the med tech and biotech space that the more successful ones are coming from, more of and coming from. And why is this? Because it's those people that probably have the ideas that, is, that are global, that can make a real difference to the world, and they want to get out of the lab. 
They don't want to be stuck looking down a microscope for the rest of their lives. They're also paid a pittance. Well, it's funny, the federal government say minimum wage here and there. If they look at what unis pay their graduate researchers, they're, they're, not, they're not minimum wage. So they, so they want a different life. They want to do better. They want, to, they want their ideas to get out to the world. Where traditionally, in, if you want to say there's engineers that might be, well, here's a device that suits this. Yes, could it be global? But it might take a bit more time. We're not, we're not interested. It's great that you can have software companies or kids with apps and gaming making unicorn companies. But to me, it's, it's, it's about how do you improve your health? How do you improve food? How do you improve, improve energy, renewables? All these different things that a society, we need to live to better ourselves. All these other nice fluffy things. If you don't have power, what good is all this other computer stuff that you're playing with? So anyway, so that's where, that's where I see Sarity, the kind of successes that are happening with Sarity. You touched on a, a point earlier. Obviously, in the past, Australia's been very good at coming up with ideas and, and research, but then the commercialization of those ideas hasn't been there like it has been in the US. What do you think is driving that disconnect? Why the, the research is so strong, but then the, the actual idea generation and the capital backing the, the ideas is, is, doesn't seem to have been there? Yeah. Here's the funny thing. WA, Perth, people will invest in a little junior mining exploration company because they understand it. It is very high risk, right? but it is liquid. You can buy a share, you can sell a share. You, you get in before they're listed, eventually you're going to be able to sell. Biotech, medtech, any of this other stuff, oh no, that's too, too, risk, too risky. I don't <laughs> it's uh, anyway so there's not there's not that backing there's not the financial backing there's way more money in the US than there are projects and that's why things get so ridiculously valued the venture capital it's a game it really is a game that the venture capitalists play there's no reality to these valuations they make it up as I want this value. Okay, we'll we'll sell you a couple. We'll make some shares at this price. That's it. Doesn't work. It doesn't work that way here. I think we have an advantage here, though. We that we don't necessarily need the venture capitalists because you can get listed on the stock exchange on the ASX here with a lot less value. And I think that's where a lot will go. Because the people, the investors who want to, who will say, here it is for the exploration company, they know they can get out. If they want to know their exit with a biotech, well, mm, is that biotech going to get listed in two years or three? Probably more like five to seven years. That's too long away. You've been at the coalface of uh, Perth and, and Perth's business community for, for so many decades now. How have you seen the evolution of Perth and, and its business community change over that time? Well, certainly, as I keep talking about resources, it, we are moving away from the resource conversation. Although I don't hang out in West Perth, I think if you walk down the street in West Perth, all you're going to do is hear mining talk. Right? But... Um, you know, I don't know whether it's COVID or not, but I think people are generally happier. They're better, except for those that were in hospitality or still are. I think a lot of people are working harder and better. Uh, the, the, um, the language, I think the attitudes have, have changed quite a bit. In terms of new industries, what role does Siri have in, in promoting and driving, uh, not necessarily the move away from traditional industries, but promoting that there are opportunities in new sectors? 
we haven't gone there yet. It's something that I always wanted to do because we, ha we do have some great institutions here. And with our various startup offices, I branded them with uh, logos that would represent these different institutions. So for example, one of them um, is, is about our oceans, which we don't take advantage of. We have massive oceans around Australia. We, there's our energy, everything, food, everything could come from oceans, and we do very little with it. But yet, there's this big Indian Oceans Institute at UWA, filled with hundreds of people. And the only thing that I've come see, seen come out of it is what to do with an off, disused offshore oil and gas rig, sink it, make an artificial reef. I mean, they are doing things, but nothing I've seen is really commercialized to any global scale. So we've got that still potential there to unlock a whole lot of things. I would love to see it being used for energy. How do we, how are we going to get energy out of the oceans? Two thirds of our planet is oceans and we ignore it for the land, the land. So here's Western Australia, Australia generally. We have massive amounts of land. Oh, that's desert. We can't grow shrimps. Look at what California, what Arizona did that was desert is now orchard, was orchard, there are now homes there. What Israel, what almost anybody who wants to do something with so-called desert, we would, could be the breadbasket for Asia, right? But nobody is looking at things big scale, large scale. We have the uh, WA Academy of Performing Arts, right? similar to NIDA, except it goes beyond NIDA and all. It's, it's beyond just musicians and pre performers. They do staging and lighting, things that are world-class, things that can change the way things are done on stage. But it doesn't get commercialized. What else do we have? Of course, our medical research. Per back, what, what do you guys know about biotech or medtech or pharma? Well, there's more and more and more interest because maybe isolation brings this to say, well, here's something new and something different instead of what the rest of the world is chasing, what the rest of the world's doing. So these are our su successful biotechs and medtechs. What, el what else do we have at Pharma? Um, we have the Posi supercomputer uh, over at Curtin University. It's the largest computer in, in the Southern Hemisphere. But I don't know what it's really been used for efficiently all these years. And of course, we have the square kilometer array uh, up in, in the Murchison. When that is finished, uh, it's going to see to the nanoseconds of the Big Bang. But it's going to collect more data that, than exists on all computers in the world. And it's going to do it at such speeds, it doesn't exist. So it's right, if, if it's ever going to take off, it needs a whole lot of new ways of thinking about computer gear, data transmission, and all that. But who's looking and doing and thinking about this? The Cyber Center up at ECU is when I went to Israel several years ago to look at their ecosystem. They said, you know, you got the best cyber center in the world, and yet they don't even want to be known about. It'll be interesting when they move into the city with WAPA and the rest. But, um, so we have these great things that are sitting here, and they're not really being leveraged. Why? Because people inside don't, they don't have that mindset yet. What about the US v Australia in terms of celebrating success? How do you see the cultural differences? You are quite right. The US does celebrate financial success, success of startups, success of businesses. Australians generally applaud their sports men and women. If you rise above the others, right, that tall poppy syndrome, that still exists, especially in academia. You don't rise. 
It's, and that is why there's not a lot of things coming out of these institutions. So that then brings us to the BAS Group, which functions essentially as a family office and there's also the, the foundation side of things. Firstly, on the philanthropic piece, what drives your, your interest in that area? I just, maybe it's an American upbringing. I did not grow up in a wealth, not even near wealth, it was probably lower socioeconomic area. But even back then, in schools, you would bring in five cents or 10 cents a week to donate to some charity thing, whatever. Um, and so there's always somebody less fortunate than you are. So no matter what you have, I don't know, it just feels, feels much better giving than receiving. And I feel very fortunate that the resource industry was good and like I said, I want to give back predominantly to those people that are out in the country, the disadvantaged kids. And that's what we focus and are still focused on. But then there's area, like I say, the opposite end of the spectrum, which if the, the startups coming out of Sari can survive and stay here and do good, they'll be the drivers. And maybe those in the country with health or education problems, maybe that will be fixed up one day because there'll be better ways of doing things. And on the family office side of things, where are you seeing opportunities to deploy capital or to invest in? Which sectors are you seeing the greatest opportunity at the moment? Certainly, we've a lot of our investment dollars um, have been in equities. Australian and global equities. Um, we do own some real estate, but um, I don't get, I don't understand real estate. So um, real estate is, we buy different things because we need it for our purposes, not to really make, develop and make money out of it. Uh, but between with the family office and coming out of Sari, my son that was the um, wanted to do materials engineering. He also loves his fishing and oceans and such. And at one of the we call it boot camp, entrepreneurial mindset boot camp, he wound up sitting with this fellow who's multi generational fisherman out of Port Lincoln in South Australia, somebody who is researching a, 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 um, trout, freshwater trout how to convert them from cold water to warm water, and then and somebody was looking at coral restoration, and these, they sat as this group, and they really gelled. And they said, well, what are we gonna do? So it wound up being my son, the fisherman, Steve Davies, and this, this researcher said, yeah, well, let's put a company together, and let's get into this, let's look at various things. And it wound up that the research melded into looking at other potential opportunities which we financed. So one of our first forays was um, getting the majority of blue swimmer crab in the southern half of Shark Bay. And so we leased that out. Well that is property, right? I get, it's a different kind of property. So we got blue swimmer crab and leased it out and that looked pretty good. And then this opportunity came up where this, this business that had developed one of the players in this crystal crab, the big white deep sea crab that between 400 and 700 meters of water that the Asians, Chinese love. And they wanted to, these two gentlemen wanted to get out of the business. So we bought their fishing license from them and leased it back to them. So they had a property, the processing plant, they had a boat, and after a little while, they said, well, we want to get out of everything. And we thought, oh, Jesus, we're going to get into the actual fishing. And, do it. and we did. So we bought them out of the property, the boat, and so now we're fishing. So with this business, it also has, it, it deals secondhand processing, scallops and prawns and whatever else. But then the next, these are all family-owned businesses, all, all of them within this fishery. 
So the next family says, I want to retire. I want to get out. So he took them out. Now we have two-thirds of the fishery. The last predominant family says, we want to get out. And as of January 1st, we'll now have 95% of the fishery. There's one fellow with a small little bit. So with that fishery, which is really quite good and quite profitable, we can start sustainably fishing that. Because these crab, they're unlike blue swimmer or others, they live to maybe into their 20s, 20 year olds. They don't start breeding till about 12 years old. But they're so deep, nobody understands that, that crab ecosystem. But now that we control that, we can study this in detail and find out why they're here, what they're there, what they're, what they're pros, how do they grow, what do they, so we can manage it sustainably and not just pick out the biggest and best and most expensive. We can properly manage it and that excites me. Lessons for those in, in business or in life more generally been incredibly successful in everything that you've done and achieved, what have you learned along the, the way? That's a very good question. I'm still learning. So I, what are the lessons? Just challenge the status quo, tell others. Uh, just keep your eyes open for opportunities. Everybody has ideas. Every single person has an idea. How many will back themselves to actually follow up on it? And if you fail, so what? Try it again. At least you tried. So I suppose these are lessons. This is kind of what we try and do. What I'm realizing with our boot camp at Sari, these were my life lessons that we're now putting out there. And it's about the heart. It's about understanding your personal values, your personal why, what you're about, what you really want to be about, um, what drives you, what your passion is, whether something works or doesn't work, will you still have that passion tomorrow? It doesn't matter what you do, creating them, you get enough from me that you realize I like creating and building things, not doing the same old. As you know, there's a, a lot of uh, noise and, and rhetoric about uh, the future viability of resources development and mining and these sorts of things. Which camp are you in? Are you in the, we've got to transition out of it immediately, or are you in the camp that says, no, there's many decades still left in, the, in these fields? I, oh, we can't get out immediately. I mean, it's hard. You don't go cold turkey. Uh, but there, there is a way, something that I, I would love to draw and follow very, very closely. We talked about the oceans and we talked about our coastline and energy and renewables. Do you know that the easiest thing at very low cost to extract out of seawater is lithium? But I got this. My first geology class, my prof told me that there's more gold in a cubic mile of seawater than there is in Fort Knox. That's amazing. There's a lot, there's millions of cubic miles of seawater. The only problem is it takes you 10 Fort Knoxes worth of gold to pull one out. But as and if we can get near free renewable energy, predominantly from capturing the energy in the oceans, not only lithium, but our copper, our magnesium, every element, every element we would need would come out of seawater. We'd have fresh water to drink, to grow things, to do things. We'd have the energy to manufacture. It's kind of like a nirvana, nirvana thing, but it's possible. But that's gonna be generational. We're gonna need new techniques for extracting these elements out of the seawater. We're gonna need better ways of capturing that energy but it'll come. Final 
question. What do you still want to achieve? What haven't you achieved yet that you've still sort of got your mind focused on in the long term? This uh, very, very, very low power cost to be able to utilize the oceans for what they're there for. I would love to see that. I would love to see that. Charlie Bass, pleasure having the opportunity to share your insights. Thanks for your time.